This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. I'm sitting in uh, Channel 9 Melbourne today. I'll be talking uh, sort of reporting, journalism, with uh, Martin King from The Current Affair. Martin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I've been wanting to do this one for a little while, mate. I'm, I'm sort of a bit daunted by you, mate, because you've been around a little while. And Why then are you they, daunted by well, me? Well, just because you do some great work, you know. I'm thinking, well, he's, he's not going to want me coming in <laughs> wasting his time on a bloody Friday morning. Mate, so, if it's all about me, you're not wasting the time. <laughs> Good stuff, mate. We're going to hear about some of the big stories you do, some of the things people best know you for. I mean, you reported on your own heart attack. Um, your annual Cup uh, Day reporting is a staple for a lot of viewers, Melbourne mate. Cup. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people look forward to that more than the Cup, maybe, <laughs> and, um, and and some of the other stuff. But let's just start off with what you're doing these days. Um, I saw you last night. You had a, an update on the, was it the Karen Ristevsky disappearance Ristevsky? case? Yeah, yeah she, she, she's been missing for 43 days, and uh, we just got a bit of luck yesterday went out to uh, her home. Uh, her husband was there with uh, the daughter and uh, the police turned up and we waited for a little while and they came out and uh, we got a, an interview with the police. They haven't been talking about it, so that was a, a bit of a scoop. So that's good. And uh, today I'm talking to you and then <laughs> I've got a few calls to make. I'm going to take the afternoon off and spend it with my grandbabies. Yeah. I, I think just, just in general, quickly, I'll say my little piece. I think ACK is an under, underrated program because I think people often think of the old days when you used to go head-to-head with TT and you'd be trying to knock each other's stories off and stuff like that. I mean, that's, it's changed quite dramatically from that. Off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Okay. Um, but, I mean, you, you, you sort of, I don't know, if it, it always seems to me maybe a little bit more serious these days, and that's probably a, a misconception perhaps. I'm sure you always did good, great work, but it seems a really powerful program these days. The program is very powerful. Uh, I'm very proud of what we do. Um, I always have been proud of what we do, but it's taken a bit of a, a turn because without today, tonight, we don't have to compete for the same-day stories and little three-minuters and whatever. Uh, we can uh, set our own sails and, mm. and do the sort of stories we like and let them run longer. Mm. And I love it as a reporter because uh, you know, my executive producer says to me, mate, I love that story. You can have 11, 12 minutes. Wow. And uh, there's one thing uh, a reporter loves, and that to let one of his stories breathe. Yes. You know, not yeah. just be condensed into four minutes. And um, if I can get six, seven, eight minutes or 11 or 12 for a good investigation, um, I, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's great too because the, the program still doesn't have an ad break till maybe, I don't know, 7.20 or something, 7.15, yeah. whatever it is. So you get a big slab of content at the start of the show, mm. which I'm sure hooks in a lot of the viewers. And, uh, mate, these days, um, I mean, the games are on, so you're, you're, seven, you're um, nine's biggest show by far after the news, and you are most nights anyway, aren't you? We are, we are. It's Look, A, a Current Affair is the go-to show for a lot of people. A lot of families watch it uh, everywhere I go. People tell me they love the show, they love what I do, they love the sort of stories we do, and they love the fact that we're out there you know, batting away for the little guy, because it's what we do. Yeah. Uh, I love the way, to you, you, you and your colleagues are really quite gutsy. I mean... You, you talk about, you know, when you, you sort of knock on a door and you sort of try and push it in a little bit, you don't let people 
you know, you, you, you don't you don't want to put up with, oh, no comment, go away. You try and, you know, you try and really get something out of them. Even you with the police last night, there was that you saw the guy had his door open. You <laughs> you put yourself into the door like he couldn't close it until he answered your question. Well, I just wanted him to answer that question. <laughs> I had a particular question I wanted to ask him, and he was walking away a bit quickly, so I thought when the policeman opened the door, I yeah. sort of politely just stood there so he couldn't shut the door. Yeah. With this little bit of a, look, you do it with a glint in your eye yes and and a little smile that plays out on your lips yeah and it helps they know who you are mm. uh, it, you know he was very personable and so was I him I was very polite and that gets you a long way mm. you get a lot more with honey than vinegar <laughs> the um, I mean some I mean younger journos might find that sort of stuff daunting it, how did you deal with it when you first were doing that do you does it get easier as you build your confidence well, from as a reporter, you starting know, starting out in television, yeah, and if you, you know, chasing someone hard for get an answer out of them, you know, you, you yeah, don't want absolutely. to be brushed off, you know. Absolutely. Look, I, I started out in television, and when I did an interview, uh, I would have a list of questions, and I wouldn't deviate from the questions, <laughs> so that someone would give me a really good answer yeah. instead of me following on for that answer and doing a follow up question. I'd ask the next question. <laughs> Which is just naivety and yes. just being callow mm. and inexperienced. But now uh, I listen, so I never used to listen. Mm. You have to listen, and you, you listen to their answer, and you and you um, follow on from that. Yeah, I mean that's certainly a great tip, and it's something I find myself still doing. I sometimes worry about the next question, <laughs> and uh, and in doing so, you don't listen to what he's just said. And you also which can be a real trap. Yes, and when when you're doing what we call a bounce or a walk in, or or, you, or you're confronting someone. And we only confront people who deserve to be confronted, mm. criminals or politicians, yep. <laughs> the odd lawyer. <laughs> uh, I used to be always mindful of, oh, I, I've, I've got to ask this, I've got to ask this, I've got to ask this, and you'd never ask it mm. because you basically talk yourself out of it. Yes. But but now, uh, for me, it's just easy. And uh, so they, my boss said to me after my heart attack, we better be careful if you doing walk-ins or confrontations. Mm. I said, mate, that's what's keeping me here. <laughs> that's my lifeblood. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I love all that sort of stuff. It's, look, it's good TV. It's good television. Um, and um, we are the voice of the people. Mm. There's a lot of injustice in this world, a lot of injustice in this country, and I find now an incredible amount of... Um, chicanery and um, people ripping other people off in dishonesty, I think it's incredible the level of it and police can't cope with it. Mm. And the, the people walk into a police station and say, I've just been ripped off for $300,000 by this person or whatever. And I say, well, go and see a lawyer because it's not criminal, it's civil. Mm. What do they do? They come to a current affair. And the amount of times, I swear to you, the amount of times people have come to us or, or rung me and said, this has happened, uh, and then you ring the particular person or you confront that person, or it could be a company, um, you'd be amazed at the change and uh, how reparation is made very, very quickly. Yeah. They don't want to be on television. Yeah. Uh, so you are the voice of the people, and you are helping people who need to... They've got nowhere else to go. Mm. We have some serious good outcomes. I mean, we have some seriously good outcomes. I remember one story where uh, AMP wouldn't pay out a young guy uh, a couple of hundred thousand dollars who was dying. He mm. only had a few months to live, and they said, well, "You proved proved to us you you haven't proved to us you're terminally ill." We went to bat for that young kid, and we raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, 
Yeah. And uh, and he, and he got his treatment, and the, and the hospital recanted. And um, I'm sorry, he got his treatment. Yeah. AMP recanted, and they paid out this hundreds of maybe half a million dollars. I think it was. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was a wonderful result for the family and for us. Yeah. What um, do you have a a um a topic that you like working in or certain sorts of stories that you always put your hand up for first or that your EP knows he should probably give to you or she might give him a hard time if he doesn't? Or Look, if I, if I put my hand on my heart, what's, what's left of it <laughs> after my heart attack, um, I would say I would love to do more character stories. Really? I yeah. love doing character stories. Yes. Um, I love the Australian character, mm-hmm. but we don't do as many as I wished we'd do. Um, people like to watch them. I like to do them, but you know the style of the show is. Um, so you're yeah, concerned they mightn't rate as well as some of the others, or possibly it's it's just a um, the style of the show is to have a really strong lead story mm-hmm. and and a, str- a, a, a st- strong second story and maybe a, a consumer story or a lighter story. To, you've got to get the mix right. Yeah. Uh, it's all about the mix, um, and it's all about the promo. Mm. You know, mm. you've got to you've got to grab people's attention these days. There are so many things distracting people these days in life, from other television shows to kids screaming in the lounge room or, or, or whatever, or, or, or the internet, yes. social media. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to get their attention, and promos are everything. Yeah, yeah, and, and ha- you've got to sell yourself. <laughs> How involved do you get in the editing of one of your stories? Do you? I, do I guess the, it comes down to time as well, too. T- timing is critical. I mean, sometimes you're working on two and three stories yep. at the same time. Yep. Um, you just have to make sure the editor's being fed the correct material, that he knows where everything is. You do a script. Do you ever chat to him? Absolutely. You can't be and say, look, this is what, I, what I've got in mind. Absolutely. And on, on, a, on a lot of stories that are in more important stories or maybe heavy-hitting stories... I'll sit down with the editor for half an hour beforehand and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Uh, what, if I get this, we start it this way, and what's your opinion, and what do you need? So, yeah, and then he's in the loop, you're in the loop, and, uh, yeah, and the story always, somehow, in this crazy world of TV, turns out well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how we do it, how we do it, sometimes I wonder, but we yeah, do. Yeah. I mean, you said at the start of this interview, if you're talking about yourself, it's going to be all okay. But are you very critical of yourself and you, your own stories? I'm do you, very. Do you come back sometimes thinking, oh, look, I just haven't got enough here and it, oh, like, no. I've done better? Or? No, I'm experienced enough to, to know when I've got enough. I won't stop okay. filming until we've got enough. But I I am very critical of, of, of myself. I don't, like to, I don't like to see myself. Mm-hmm. On television, I don't like to see shots of myself. Reverse questions. I don't like watching my pieces to camera. Yeah. Maybe I've got body dysmorphic syndrome. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, but uh, no, I've, I, you know, I've never kept one of my stories. Really, I don't have a copy of any of my stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they've gone to Pluto. Yeah, they're gone, yeah. And, and I'll do the next one. Mm. Um, so I just, yeah, I just don't have it. And people say, why don't you have any of your stories? You should have a huge library full of them. Yeah. 
I just, well, it doesn't interest me. Yeah, it sounds like to me you've never done that. Or I, I do notice people get to a certain stage in life, and I'm certainly there myself, where you realise, what's the point of keeping this stuff? I'm not going to be around forever, and no one else is going to give us stuff. So you know. Do you know what? I don't think about the past. Yeah. Um, my dad used to say to me, look back, son, don't stare. Mm. And it's mm. a really good saying. I don't, I don't look back too, too far into the past or, 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 or worry about it. Or I live in the now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think about the future so much. I don't think about the past. I, li- I live in the moment. Yes, yeah. I'm very mindful of what's happening right now, and I'm enjoying my life. Yeah, yeah. We only get yeah. one lap, and I'm about, I reckon, three-quarters of the way around. Right. Yeah. Well, you've got a bit to go. you got a bit to go. Tell me, give me a little bit of your history with ACCA. How long have you been there? I, Roughly, if you... I was at the Melbourne Herald newspaper, which right, is a broadsheet, okay. which... Yeah. Um, uh, amalgamated with the Herald Sun sure. um, for five years okay. and I, I received a phone call from one of the senior producers at the Willisie program All right. uh, back in well, it was 1985, 1986 I think and they said we would like you to come and work for us and I said why? And they said because we've been told you're the best reporter out there okay. and we want you to work for us. Yep. I'm sounding a little bit egotistical now, aren't I? <laughs> Who was your editor? Did you work under Neil Mitchell at all when he was there? Neil Mitchell was the editor yeah. uh, and uh, he's still a good friend of mine, okay. now, Neil Mitchell, and uh, he was very sad to see me go. And I was sad to go because I'd been there for five years and I was really hitting my straps as a, mm. a reporter. I was learning a lot. I was 35 years old, so I was old to go into television at 35. Mm. They're all children. (laughs) And uh, I was very, very happy there, and I was starting to do overseas trips. Um, And I thought, how how good is this Mm. life? I'm really Mm. loving my job. And then I got the phone call, and I said, no, there's no way no one I could work in television. It'd be too terrifying. It's Mm. too scary. It's a very scary beast, TV. But I thought, you know what, I've always had a crack. Mm. I've always had a crack. So I thought, okay, all right, I went across and I met them in Bendigo Street, Richmond, and I can still remember walking in and smelling the the wood from the sets. (laughs) You know, they used to make all the sets for the different shows and whatever, and it just had that smell about it, and um, I was very excited by it. And Mike Willisley was was the host at the time. Um, And back then everyone was very experienced and, and they did amazing stories. Um, and I was hopeless. <laughs> really? I was bloody hopeless, yeah. Well, I'd come, straight, start, was it? I'd come straight from newspapers to television. You normally go from newspapers to country TV, like Win or Prime. Okay. Um, then you go and do news, and then you go to a current affair. Hmm. I went straight from newspapers to national television. I, I knew nothing. And Willis, it was big time, wasn't oh, it? This was, this was yeah. big time. I didn't even know how to dress. <laughs> They said, why are you wearing that? (laughs) Flares are out, mate. (laughs) So they gave me a clothing allowance and a wardrobe mistress taught me how to dress. But like a television reporter. But, you know, you've got to get your voice right. Mm. You've got to get your presentation right. You've got to get your style right. And that was one of the things that um, I had to establish was a style. I I was just... uh, Willis, he said to me, mate, you're a rough diamond. (laughs) I think you've got a lot of ability, you've, mm-hmm. got, a, you've got a good future, but you're a rough diamond. We've got to take those rough edges off you. Okay. Um, and they did. Yeah. And they honed that for me because people do it for you in television, not so much these days, but back then they did. 
and uh, yeah, they, were, they they groomed me, mm-hmm. um, and I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. What were some of your early, um, call them successes, or things that maybe made people take notice and realise you, you know, you might be working out a gay on TV? Are there any stories in those early days? Well, don't don't ask me about my first story because <laughs> my, my first story I got belted up with a watering can. Did you? By by a fellow who was running a caravan park, and uh, a young couple couldn't pay the rent for for their caravan. They had a little baby, so he went and took the baby's medicine until they paid. Right. And we thought that was pretty outrageous and very right. unjust. Yeah. So we went up there and. Uh, confronted him with the camera and yeah. uh, he led me down this little pathway and ran another pathway and round the back in, in the back of his house then picked up a watering can and, and belted the living you have it? yeah suitcase you get it on camera it. yeah it was you got... on camera yeah. wow well that would have made an impact it made a bit, made a big impact on my head <laughs> But that was my, that was the first story I did. And then I think the second story I did was on Street Kids, right? Okay, uh, in in Melbourne because yes. Street Kids were a real problem. And that was a really really good story. So, and in those in those days, it was it was a wonderful program, and it still is, of course. But it was different back then. Money was no problem. Mm. There was French champagne in the in the fridge. <laughs> fridge was full of beer, and there were spirits. And have a bit of a no. have a bit of a look around here. You're lucky to get a you're lucky to get a short black. But it it was um, yeah, money was no problem. The place was awash with money. They used yes. to they used to come to you every couple of months and say, "Is there anything you need? Wow. Is there anything you want?" Mm. It was just you know, Kerry Packer. And um, although I do remember Kerry Packer coming down and breaking all the champagne in publicity, saying, what's all this shit? <laughs> Took the French champagne out of the, out of the fridge oh, and, uh, and smashed it. Yeah. No more. Wow. He said no more. Right, right. Mm. Mm. The, um, did, you, did you travel much in those days? Did they... Uh, I travelled an enormous amount, and um, that was one of the things I really loved about the early days of TV. Yeah. Always business class, always five-star, okay. uh, always fantastic stories, always beautifully researched mm-hmm. and produced mm-hmm. uh, because you'd have producers. Um, and uh, we did trips to, initially, all over Australia. That was my patch until I got more experience. Then they started an overseas unit, uh, and Stephen Rice from 60 Minutes, the yep. producer, was, yep. was the head of the overseas unit. And there were two reporters, Peter Wilkinson and me, and we were uh, basically part of the overseas unit. Okay. And so, yeah, we travelled. This was a couple of years after I started. For the first yeah. first two years, um, as I said, I was, I was pretty hopeless. Yeah. I, I was yeah. learning and I was making mistakes and whatever. Um, but, yeah, as, as I improved and, 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 and refined myself and became a better reporter and broke more stories. And the stories were wonderful back in those days, mm. just mm. so rich and strong and colourful. And we went overseas. Yeah, yeah. Went to America, we used to go to Europe, we'd go around Asia. Some of the stories, you you, you know, before you came, mm. I thought, what have I done? I, I actually yeah. couldn't, I couldn't think of any really good stories I'd done. I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I've done that and that and I've done that and that, so I've got a little list here yeah, of what give, I've done. Give us, give us some of those, um, some of the memorable stuff I and mean, we'll get well, to your heart attack in a minute. Tell the, us. Well, the, well, probably the biggest story I've done because it was a, a world event was September 11. Oh, okay. And that happened uh, when I was asleep 
Um, I'd had a, an early night. My daughter came upstairs. She was sitting with her boyfriend down the back watching TV with my other daughter and her boyfriend. And Emma walked up the stairs and she said, she woke me and said, Dad, I'm sorry to wake you, but the world just changed. Wow. And I said, what happened? And she said, you need to come downstairs. So I went downstairs and she said, look at this. And they were replaying mm -hmm. the plane going into the, into the first tower. Mm -hmm. And as I sat there, the plane went into the second tower. And we thought, well, it was like the end of the world. Yeah. What yeah. else is going to happen? Then the Pentagon. So that day, um, they said, they rang me and said, you go to America, you go to New York. And I yeah. said, fantastic, okay. Mm -hmm what's the plan? And they said, well, they've shut the airspace in New York, in America, the whole country, which was just massive. Mm. So we had to fly to London, oh, wow. wait for 12 or 13 hours in London. Mm. Uh, we couldn't, because there was no... Uh, the air, couldn't get be, in. Because the airspace, sorry, be, because the uh, airspace was shut down, we had to fly from London to Canada and then drive down... Okay to New York yeah. so it's a very circuitous route but uh, we got we got there in the end uh, I had $5,000 cash in my pocket the company said there's yeah. five grand you've got no clothes no tawdries because yeah. we just went just went right um, so I, we, we bought everything um, and just started work yeah and it was the most incredible story to, to walk down there to ground zero and see the huge smoking hole in the ground and all those people still down there. Mm -hmm. And we had special access. We had to get uh, FBI clearance and we had special passes. And uh, interviewing the firemen as they came out, it was a very mm -hmm. difficult story to report because you pull out a camera in New York and they'll mug you to be interviewed. Mm -hmm. They love to be interviewed. Mm -hmm. Like often in Australia, you pull out a camera and people just scuttle off mm. um, because you know they get a bit nervy about it but in America they just love to be interviewed but nobody wanted to talk mm. everybody was too upset yeah it was like their lives were, yeah. were, were in, in, in disarray and no one knew what was happening we would get the underground train from you know to um, from New York to out to, out to Brooklyn or whatever and people were wondering um, well what's that parcel there mm, mm. and uh, what's the, what's the, what's that white powder there yeah. is, is, is that is it anthrax yes. are we, yeah. are we being, having an anthrax attack and everyone was very very jittery but then after I stayed there for a month and after after a couple of weeks it all settled down um, and we did some amazing stories there that for, the first story I did was the most amazing story because it was, you know, probably I think half the show or most of the show. And uh, there's such wonderful talent, the Americans. And um, of course, we were looking for Australians. We found some Australians there. We found an Australian nurse, I remember, and she had lost her husband in one of the towers. And I just remember it was the most traumatic interview. She cried from the start to the finish. Uh, it was gut wrenching stuff. So we, we stayed there for four weeks um, and came home. And uh, yeah, that was an amazing story. But that is probably not the best story or most story I'm most proud of because that just happened. Mm. So you're a reporter there. Something's just happened. I often think when reporters win awards for a big story that had happened and they cover the story, I think, really? Mm. It's kind of a bit of a cheat, isn't it? Because you didn't make the story. Yeah, you didn't cause it to happen. It you didn't yeah. research it. You didn't whatever. Um, but even though they may have done a good job with it, but with stories like 
Waco with David Koresh and the Branch, the, the Branch Davidians. Um, all those people died. We did that story a year before it happened. Just remind people who mightn't recall that. So it was like a cult. This was, and they all took a this was David, a drug or something. That this was David Koresh. Um, he he was the leader of the the, the Branch Davidians in in Waco, Texas, mm-hmm. and he was a cult leader, con man, very charismatic. Um, and he was accused by the authorities of having weapons and and, and sexually abusing women. So we he'd never been interviewed by any journalist, and I remember Hinch, the show, did a story about some of the disaffected family members who'd left the cult to come back to Australia, but they didn't leave their shores. They just interviewed them here and did this story. And we thought, well, let's let's go and get this bloke and interview him. But how do we do it? He's a womaniser. How do you do it? So I got one of the producers. She was um, a Middle Eastern girl and had a very sexy, throaty voice and accent. And he loved women. So we, we got her to ring him and agree to see us. Right. Incredibly, he did. <laughs> If I'd rung him, he probably would have said no. Anyway, we went to America to meet him, and we met him at the Waco Hilton. And uh, he had a, a compound way out in the in the sticks out of Waco, and he had 80 to 100 people there, women, men, couples, husbands, wives, children, teenagers, the whole thing, and they all adored him because he'd convinced them he was the Lamb of God. So we went to the Hilton, we met him, and he said, where's Nahida? I said, Nahida's sick and couldn't come. He said, well, I'm not doing the story with you, you're an ugly man. And I said, well, no, I'm not. He said, yeah, no, it's all off, I'm not doing it unless she's here. I said, well, she's back in Australia. So he said, well, meet me here at 8 o'clock tonight and we'll have dinner and you have to prove to me you're worthy to do my story. So I had to... um, meet him that night and we met him he turned up with four or five bodyguards and we had dinner and uh he talked about himself the whole night as these as these blokes do and towards the end of the night the waiter came over and looked at him he said mr koresh i've seen the light and the waiter was standing in the corner serving us food and drinks Mm. and he'd converted the waiter really while he was while he was bullshitting me and I was bullshitting him ab- you, ab- 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 about how worthy I was. But when you were chatting, could you was you you sort of picking up any charisma that he had? Or oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. He was a really really nice bloke. Yeah, and he had the gift of the gab, and he could quote any passage or verse in the Bible. Um, like just off the top of his head, he was brilliant. He had a, obviously had a, a photographic memory. So that at the end of the night, he said he was going to buy me dinner. At the end of the night, he stood up. He said, I'm leaving now. You pay the bill. I'll see you at the compound at 8 o'clock in the morning. So we went to the local newspaper and the police and said, this is what we're doing. We're going inside the compound. If we're not out by 5 o'clock tonight, can you come and get us? And they said, "Okay, no worries. Um, So when we got out at 5 o'clock the next night, um, we rang and said, "Okay, we're safe because it was a scary place. And you yeah. got your filming in? We filmed for the whole day. The first thing that happened when we walked in there uh, was that David Koresh, the cult leader, was also David Koresh, the PR man, and he had four slabs of Foster's 
one for it, one for the cameraman, one oh. for the sound day, one for the producer, and one for me. And that was how it all started. Oh. And he gave us total carte blanche. He said, "You can just just walk around, talk to anyone you like." So we talked to all of these followers, and they told us, "We will die for him. He's the Lamb of God." We will die for him. So we, we, we then we went back the next day, and we interviewed him. And there were a lot of allegations about him being a pedophile, uh, and he'd segregated. I think he had forty couples that he'd segregated the men in one dorm, and the women in the other. And he would walk in and have sex with any woman he liked, because he convinced them that he had this direct line to God, and they were true believers. And he was having sex with twelve and thirteen year old girls, mm. and they were having babies. And they had doctors and nurses and lawyers within oh. the cult. So they weren't registered in hospitals. But how did those people accept that that was... Because they accepted he was okay. the Lamb of God. They yeah. accepted that he had a direct line to God. Special privileges. Or yeah, he used to go into a paddock. They'd drive from Texas to California. He'd walk into a paddock and say, boy, stop the car. Hmm. And get out and stand in the middle of a paddock and put his arms up and commune with God for hmm. 15 minutes. Come back and they'd say, what did he say? And he'd say, well, God said this and he said that. It ended badly, didn't it? He, My memory what, that what was a, a siege or something, was it? Or? I remember what happened. We came back, we did the story, and the story ran, I think, almost the entire show. Hmm. It was a fantastic story. Uh, and people said, it's a beat-up. And I said, it's not a beat-up. Something is going to happen there one day. Hmm. And when I was there, I thought, I can sense it. I had a gut feeling, this will be another Jonestown. Oh, that's what I'm, I'm mixing up with Jonestown too. That yeah. Was, yeah that was... Well, Jonestown happened before and I thought okay. this is this is going to be another Jonestown. Right. Um, so I thought I'll take out some insurance here mm. and I'll say to, I'll ask him some questions, probably not germane, probably not pertinent, but yeah. while I'm here I might as well. And I said to him, do you have guns? Yes, we do. Do you have ammunition? Yes, we do. And I said to him, what would you do if the authorities came in here with their guns? And he said, we will fight them. We have the right to bear arms. And he went off. It was fantastic television. Well, guess what? A year later, it happened. Mm. A year later, it happened. And I had hundreds of minutes of videotape back then Mm. um, of him saying all of this. So what, what happened was the authorities went in after our story. The local newspaper ran a five-part series, um, and then the FBI, the ATF, and all you know the different agencies they have in America went in, and they were shot up. Mm. They killed some of the, 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 the cult members, and some of them died as well. Okay. And then there was a 51-day siege, wow. and I, I went back for another few weeks mm-hmm. to cover the siege. We did a story almost every night and live crosses and whatever and uh, in- interviewed people in the town, uh, interviewed uh, the government and whatever. And I came back home. I thought, I can't wait to see you. It's 51 days. So we came back to Australia and I was asleep one night and this place, this fortress was surrounded by tanks and all the different, you know, the armoured personnel carriers and police cars and hundreds of cops and whatever. So we've got home and I get a phone call one night and it was Mark Bro, who had been his right-hand man for three years, living in Australia, out in Chadston in Melbourne, and he said to me, have you heard? And I said, no, heard what? And I'd been dreaming when the phone was ringing and I was dreaming of David Koresh and his face and there was a ring of fire around his face. 
that's what I was dreaming when the phone was ringing. He said, they're all dead. Oh and I said, what do you mean? He said, the place has burned down. The FBI went in with tanks spitting flames and there was a big, massive fire and, the, and, and they're all dead. And I said, bloody hell, I've just been dreaming about him. Mm. It was really spooky. And uh, so then we went back again to America. So that, that was probably... That was probably the best story I think I've done yeah. because, be, in, in the sense that we caused it, to, we got the story through determination and talking to him and... Mm. Um, we well, got and amazing he, insights that no one else ever... Him trusting saw. us. The FBI came out and took our footage mm. during the siege because um, they were building this huge building at the front. And they said, we want to know what's inside there so we can go in and we don't want to know where all the walls are. Mm. So, yeah, and uh, I won a Walkley Award for that story. Yeah, yeah, and rightly so. It's mm. an amazing tale. Mm. It's an amazing tale. A um, couple of other things I, I, I want to get to, because we're sort of probably nearly out of time here. I think you, you're a busy man. Oh, I've talked too got, much. Have you got a few more minutes? I always talk too can much, we, yeah. Can we just, I, w- I, want to get to the, um, I want to get to the heart attack. So give us a little bit of background about that, and then you sort of reported on, on what happened, didn't you? Don't ever have one. <laughs> no good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, no, I had a... I was coming to work at 8.30 in the morning, and I had a massive heart attack. Um, the cardiologist told me later on it was I was in the 3% who survive. Mm-hmm. 97% of people don't survive. Wow. As soon as it happened, I rang triple zero. No one had to tell me what it was. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a really big heart attack, and it was the worst experience I've ever had in my life. And went to hospital. I was in intensive care. And uh, the boss rang and said, we'd like to do a story. And I said, well, I'm too sick to do a story. And he said, well, Tracy can do it. Mm. So tra- the host, Tracy Grimshaw, yeah. came down and did the story. And I did subsequent stories mm-hmm. on my heart attack. So what I should have done at the time, according to all the doctors, was retire. Yeah. Smell the roses, smell the coffee, whatever you do when you retire, uh, and have a nice life. But I decided I'd like to do radio as well. Yeah. So apart from staying here and doing a current affair, I went to Melbourne Talk Radio and hosted the afternoon the drive that show. That was the three MTR. Yeah. Is that there? MTR. That sort of experiment they had. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. That, yeah. That, but when I when I fed, when I found out they weren't fair income about keeping it long term. Mm. I, I bailed after 18 months, but it was a wonderful experience. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going to add, add that string to my bow. Mm. I've been a, a drive host on yeah. on radio, right. and and I loved it. It was fantastic fun. But I was also freelancing here. Mm. I quit from Nine to do that um, with, with Nine's blessing, but stayed freelancing. Right. So I was doing stories for ACA, but also doing my radio show, yeah. which was very hard. Um, and I was very fresh from my heart attack, so emotionally and physically, I was pretty, pretty frail. Mm. But I got through it, and here I am. Yeah, yeah. And you said like you love doing character stories. I mean, the one you're best known for is your your Cup Day coverage. You get in there and, and chat to the the punters, and it's the aftermath. You know, the the stragglers who who don't sort of rush away, who like who love hanging around. Um, tell us how how did that start? I oh, look. I, I think I've done the Melbourne Cup. Every year for, for so, since I could remember, yeah. um, I, I think one of the first 
years I did it uh, was, uh, I think, Vanderhum won it from memory. And it, it was a bog track. It rained right. and rained and rained all the night before, the day before, all the day of the races. It was terrible. So we made the most of it and had galoshes and sloshed around in the mud and the blood and the beer and whatever. Uh, and then from then on, um, I did the cup every year. And yeah. pe- people say to me, I, I think we love your yarn more than the cup. Yeah. yeah well, I do. I know. And you get, because there's plenty of coverage of the top having their day out but it's good to get in and just see the general public and the people who don't get the special high-end experience and oh i love it how they I, I, I love it it's look you know someone once said to me you're a man of the people <laughs> and i said really and I, I thought that was pretty silly and then i thought about it i thought i actually quite like that that i'm a man of the people because yeah. i love people mm. the reason i do my job is because i love people I love being with them and I love talking to them and doing stories, helping them, being their voice when they haven't got a voice against all sorts of odds. Yeah. Um, and Melbourne Cup Day is just a really special day. It's like a carnival. Everyone's dressed up. Everybody's happy. There's no dramas. And it's just a really, really good fun day for everyone but me because yeah. it's bloody hard work. <laughs> it's really, really hard work. And they always want 10, 11, 12 minutes. Yes, yeah. It runs and forever, doesn't it? Yeah, then we get back get back here at four o'clock in the afternoon and mm-hmm. have to work like hell to get it up but yeah. it takes a lot out of you but it's good fun to sit back and watch it the <laughs> next day and yeah and i've done it every year and it is a bit of an institution yeah and most people seem happy to chat to you and, that, and i think a lot of them recognize and they go oh great i'm they know, do it's a, it's I, it's very it's just people think how did you get that how mm. did you get that interview mm. and if people know who you are and they recognise you and they like you, it's so much easier to get them to talk to you yeah. because they trust you. Mm. They trust mm. you because you're in their lounge rooms every night. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they see the sorts of stories you do and they see the sort of character you are and that you're fair income. And I pride myself on just being real. I'm, I'm just one of, the, one of the punters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a time when people are happy to chat to you. You mentioned before, in Australia, some people, you know, get a bit nervy when you pull out a camera. Um, is, is that a bit of a, you know, how do you judge when you've got to be, you know, not too intrusive and just tread tread warily? I mean, I notice our office in Sydney is up at the cross. And I know a lot of the news crews up there, they don't drive around in marked cars because you don't want to, you know, draw attention to yourself if you're out doing maybe what's a sensitive story. Is, is that part of it? Yeah, look, you, I think what you do is use your humanity and your common sense. Mm. I mean, if you're, if you're going to the bush, I've seen news reporters in the bush wearing suits and ties. Yeah. And I think, why would you? Mm. You're mm. not going to relate to the people. No. You need to relate to people. And you relate to them. If, if, if people um, are getting down and, and swearing when they're talking, well, act like them. Mm. Talk like mm. them. Be like them. Relate to them. And so you talk like that. If, if someone's you know, a bit more upper class or a bit toffee or whatever, you know, you just be yourself. You, you, you adapt to, to what people are like. Um, and, yeah, you've got, you've got to be sensitive. You've got to be smart. Um, you just use your all the experience that you can garner um, to get the result that you need. Yeah. And, and, and don't ever underestimate experience. Right. People yeah. say, oh, you're old. <laughs> okay. Is, is 64 old compared to what? Mm. But the thing is, I'm experienced, and that, that experience takes you a long, long way. So I guess you, you've got to make judgment calls, I guess, too, because 
sometimes you probably obviously would look at a situation they look I'll go and have a chat before we start rolling and then other times you think well but if we do that we might miss something good uh, yeah, how I, do you make those judgment calls I, I don't I don't do that I don't like to have a chat to someone before we start rolling okay. because um, then they're prepared for it yeah, and okay. quite often they'll say no it's mm. easy just to walk up and use your charm and use your personality and say yeah, g'day mate how are you going would you mind if we had a bit of a yak mm. um, that opens a lot of gates okay because okay. people go oh no he's a nice guy and mm. I am a nice guy you know mm. I just I am me I am real and I'm like them and, I, and I, people like that so your instruction or your camos obviously no look just keep that camera rolling. Yeah, look, we you all... you ever miss stuff and, and you learn by experience? Sometimes we miss them. Sometimes we miss stuff. I remember I did a story um, a month or so ago where the cameraman said, I'll just stand out the street and if someone talks, just bring them down. Hmm. We tried it two or three times and, and people said, mm, hmm. they were kind of like halfway there, but no, no thanks. Yeah. But if you've got the camera there, hmm. I said, oh, look, just seriously, I want to ask you one question. And that's all we want, one question. Mm. Um, you know, were you happy with the council's mm. decision or something like that? Um, so then the next story we did, I said, we're not doing that anymore. We just roll. Mm. Be ready. You, you, you have to be ready in TV. Do you ever... Do you ever go out with security if you think it yeah, could be something? We do now. Because few of you guys have been um, the world has hit changed. Upon, haven't you? Yeah, the, yeah. W- the world has changed, and the people you would normally a couple of years ago go out and speak with quite freely and without any fear. You don't know what they'll do now. Mm. So many people are on drugs, mm. on ice. So many people are angry now. So yeah, it's my call or the reporter's call. Uh, to have security, yes. and quite often you do have security. It's worth two or three hundred dollars uh, not to get someone put in hospital, mm. and people will put you in hospital. Mm. Um, you know, more and more, you know, um, we have problems with people attacking us or threatening to attack us, and things have happened to crews out on the road. You know, they've been run off the road by maniacs who've, who've, who've lost it because they're asked the question or because they were filmed. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be careful. Look, I'll just, just wind up with this. Are there misconceptions about um, about what you and your colleagues do at all? Does it ever sort of annoy you? I mean, you, you hear people say sometimes, oh, they're trying to goad someone or, they, you know, they're trying to... Mm. trying to get someone to throw a punch or stuff like no, that? No, 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 no. Well, look, I've, I've certainly never done so that. I don't want people throwing punches at me. Yeah. Because I'm getting a bit slow to duck these days. <laughs> uh, no, no, not at all. Um, look, as I said, we just... I go out and I just do what I do and I'm friendly to people and uh, mm. it's all about getting a result. Mm. And it's all about, for me, from when I was 13 years old, I was writing to newspaper editors about my concerns about the world. Oh, really? And I'm still doing it at 64. (laughs) So there's something in me um, that just, you know, I've got this quest for justice and fairness I always have had. Yeah. Um, And if we can help people along the way, you know, the world's better for it. Yeah. And, you know, with, with, with the stories I do, mm. I'm not the story. Mm. The story the story is the person we're interviewing and the viewers are the ones who are important. I do, I do my stories for the viewers. Yes. 
Yeah. So they can be entertained. They can be. They feel a sense of satisfaction, a sense of justice. They can be educated. Uh, make them smile. Make them laugh. Um, just, I want people to get something out of the stories I do. Not, not watch the story. Not hear the story. I want them to feel it. And when the story's finished, they go, "Wow, that was amazing." I love that. Yeah. You know, yeah. If, if that happens, I'm happy. Martin, look, um, really appreciate your time, mate. It's great getting in here. Great hearing you. Got some great stories there, some of the work you've done. So I haven't finished keep- yet. <laughs> We've just started. <laughs> mate, keep it up. Thank we'll, you. We'll come back for um, part two maybe one day. Round two. Yeah, yeah, good on you. Thanks, <laughs> Thank mate. you.